Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask His guidance and direction on our study. Father, You have given us Your Word that we might know Your thinking, that we might have the mind of Christ, and that we might understand how to think, reflect, and act in this world in terms of our position as members of Your royal family, as those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who therefore have a special mission in this world in order to represent you and to represent your truth, and therefore our lives are to be a visible witness and testimony not only to those around us, but also before the angels, and that our lives themselves have an evidentiary value within the overall uh, conflict we refer to as the angelic conflict. Now, Father, we pray as we continue our study this morning on this area of authority and how we should respond to it, we pray that you would help us to understand what the Scripture says and to see how these things apply to our own thinking, to our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, and while you're turning there, I'm going to briefly review what we did last time in terms of talking about this important issue of authority. This morning we'll focus on the question, how should we correctly challenge authority when that authority is wrong? So just a brief review, I'm going to go through these rather uh, rapidly. These were six points I covered last week, if you weren't here last week, you'll just have to go back and uh, recover those. I'm not going to go slow so you can write them down. Um, So that's just a little fair warning. So we began to look at authority in the Bible as a general structure because it's important to understand where the Scriptures are coming from. We saw, first of all, that within the Trinity, within the Godhead, there is an authority structure that has been there throughout eternity. God the Son is submitted to the Father. God the Holy Spirit is submitted to the Father uh, and the Son. The second thing I pointed out was that the angels are in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. They are under his authority, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Third, I pointed out that every church-age believer is commanded to submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. So we are all under the authority of Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church 
which means not that he is the source of the church, but that he is the one in command. He is the one in charge. He is the authority over each and every one of us, Ephesians 5.24. Fourth, I pointed out that servants are required to submit to their masters. This has application of slaves to masters. The word doulos there in the Greek can refer to servants or slaves. And it also has application to employees to employers, 1 Peter 2.18 and Ephesians 6.5. Within the family, there is an authority structure. Wives are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. So there is a comparison there. Uh, Wives, that as you submit to the Lord, you are to submit to your husband. And uh, there's no condition there, as I pointed out last time, uh, that you uh, submit to your husband when he's right, submit to your husband when you agree with him, submit to your husband when he does the things that you want him to do. Uh, there's no qualification there, Colossians 3.18, Ephesians 5.22. Children are to submit to their parents. Children are to submit to their parents. They are to honor their parents. And that is where they learn authority within the divine institution. Number three, the family. The goal of parents is to instill authority orientation into children so that as they mature, they will be able to function in a uh, successful, profitable way within any environment, whether it's in school, whether it is uh, in uh, sports, whether it has to do with any sort of organization, theater, music, whatever it may be. Every sphere of life has its uh, various authorities. So the place to learn that is in the home. Seventh, I pointed out that the young, in Scripture, Peter uh, exhorts the young to submit to their elders, that is, those who are uh, older, those who are more mature, 1 Peter 5, 5. Uh, And last, I pointed out that church members are to submit to their leaders, Hebrews 13, 7 and 17, for the leaders watch out for your souls, as those who must give account, pastors, church leaders give account, and this will be part of the issues at the judgment seat of Christ. So in summary, point number one, authority is not part of the created order. It's not something God placed into creation in order to restrain sin which is one of its functions, but it was there before there was ever sin, so it's inherent in the Godhead. Uh, Second point was that at the very center of all authority is God who is the source of all authority. This is what uh, Paul refers to in Romans 13.1. All uh, surpassing authorities literally uh, come from God. Authority is grounded in the Godhead. A third point of summary was that authority is necessary for any social group, organization, or uh, order to function. By social organization, I don't mean an organization designed for social activities. Anything that involves more than one human being is, by definition, social. It involves a society of people. It can be a business. It can be a sports team. It could be the military. It can be any sort of uh, fraternal organization. But every organization has some sort of authority uh, structure in, in order to accomplish its goals, in order to achieve its purposes. There must be authority and recognition of authority. And we saw, fourthly, that authority is the ultimate issue in the angelic conflict because that was at the root, at the core of Satan's 
original sin, recorded in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, summarized by those five I will statements. And there he was asserting his authority over God, basically saying, God, you said it, but I have the right to evaluate it and judge it from my own frame of reference. I'm the ultimate authority to to determine whether I will do it or not. And see, that has tremendous implication and application for every believer because whenever we are under an authority, whether you are a child, whether you are a wife, whether you are a, a, uh, a husband under the authority of the Word of God, whether you are an employee, an employer, uh, no matter what your position in society, a citizen of a nation, there are many different authority structures over you and how we respond is important as a testimony because whenever we are in a position of rebellion or rejection of authority, whenever we are resisting authority, a authority set over us, we are imitating Satan in his original sin. We are basically saying that we have the right to judge the authority. We know more than they do and we're able to make the decision, and we're putting them, in essence, under our authority. That's the idea there. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden, as I pointed out last time, that the temptation to Eve was to get her to think. And once she began to think down Satan's track, and she began to accept the presupposition of his statement that, did God really say this? Did he really have your best interest at heart when he said, you can eat from every fruit of the tree, except the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And did he really mean you would die? And then Satan said, no, he, you won't die. And so his point was to subvert the authority of God at that very instant. And so when she followed his thinking and walked down the path he laid out uh, before her, then she ended up uh, violating the divine authority and the authority of God's word. And so by implication, we see from that and from other statements of Scripture that the word of God is the highest authority in the believer's life because it is in the word of God that we understand the thinking of God and we understand all of God's uh, mandates, all of his commands, positive commands and what we should do, prohibitive commands and what we should not do. And so it is important for the believer to know the word of God because this is the ultimate authority in our life. So as we went through the Old Testament, what I did was to look at some examples where you had believers in authority where the human authority over them uh, violated uh, God's commands, and we began to see that there were indeed certain circumstances when it was legitimate for a, a believer to uh, to disobey a human authority. Now, I've created a couple of charts to try to help summarize this and to sort of think about it in a little more conceptual way. We start with God. The Godhead, the triangle represents the triune eternal Godhead. The yellow represents the glory of God. And we see that God exists in this triune relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in two ways. The first way is indicated on the left that they are equal in essence. Equal in essence, Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. They have the same essence. For those of you who like big words, this is referred to as the ontological trinity. This refers to the fact that they are metaphysically one. They are, there is a unity there. Neither, have, neither one of them have anything superior to another. There is not anything in the Son that is superior to the Holy Spirit. There is nothing in the Father that is superior to the Son. It is simply an authority structure that's there for the accomplishment of certain, uh, certain goals, certain plans, certain, uh, certain endeavors within God's work. And so we talk about God in one aspect as being completely equal in essence, and in another aspect they are distinct in role. We have the Father over the Son and the Father and the Son sending the Holy Spirit. This goes back to basic terminology that was accepted in the early, what is known as the ecumenical councils, the Council of Nicaea, Council of Ephesus, Council of Chalcedon in the early church. So we have the uh, ontological trinity, don't you just love that word, on, on the left, and we have the economic trinity. It's work in, it's outworking the works, the roles of God on the right. Two new words you can think about for a while. Now, God then has various creatures. I've left angels out of this because angels aren't in our chain of command. And so God creates human authority. This is what Romans 13 says, is that all human authority, all surpassing authorities come from God. And so I've listed these there, whether it's government, parents, husband, teacher, employer, coach, officer, church leaders, many other areas of authority. Those are just a few of those. God has created those authorities and delegated that authority to them. And as individuals, we are to uh, respond to that authority. So as individuals, we are under these various spheres of authority. But every now and then, there's a conflict. Sometimes these are conflicts because in our own self-absorbed, narcissistic, arrogant manner, we just don't like what our parents say or what our husband might say or what our employer says or what our president says or what some other area of authority is in our life. And so we just don't want to do it. But there is a... uh, mandate in Scripture that we are to honor these authorities. But what do we do when those authorities come into conflict with the Word of God? Number one, that's our first question. What do we do when they, we come into conflict, those authorities come into conflict with the Word of God? And number two, how do we know? How do we know when they're in conflict with the Word of God? How do we know, how do we pick those particular battles? Because there are people who will think that just about any position that somebody takes that is contrary to their theology means that it violates the Word of God. So we have to look at these biblical examples where there's a legitimate, where the Word of God recognizes a legitimate uh, disobedience or, di- or legitimate challenge to authority in order to understand those those principles. So in this next slide, I see where the I've got it pictured with the human authority off to the left, and what happens is that we'll see in the pattern again and again is that on the one hand we have direct specific commands from God. 
They are direct in the word of God. They're specific. Thou shalt not murder. Uh, you shall not lie. You shall not bear false witness. Uh, some of these I'm quoting from the Ten Commandments. Same principles are restated in the in the New Testament. You shall love one another. Uh, you shall proclaim the gospel. These are various mandates that we have in Scripture. But then there are times when the human authority is going to uh, set forth some dictum that contradicts the spe- direct specific command of God. And and I'm setting that as the issue. It has to be a direct, specific command of God that is violated, not a theological principle, not a philosophically derived establishment truth, but a principle, a direct statement, rather, a direct statement from God. Now, we got into this because in 1 Kings, in the passage we're studying in 1 Kings 18.3, we see this individual introduced to us who is serves in the court of King Ahab, and he has disobeyed the king. He has disobeyed the king because the king and his wife Jezebel have violated the Mosaic law, violated the Mosaic covenant, and they have brought in false religion into the northern kingdom under the uh, the religion of the Baal worship and the Asherah, the fertility religions, which were uh, setting up various idols in violation of the uh, of the Mosaic law, especially introducing all of the sexual uh, promiscuity and sins and fornication that went on in that kind of worship. That also violated the Mosaic law, and so. This is being imposed by the government upon everyone in the northern kingdom. In fact, Jezebel has her various hit squads going out in a search-and-destroy mission to kill the prophets of Yahweh, the prophets of God. And so Obadiah, as a believer, a high-ranking believer in the court of Ahab, it violates the policy of his king, and he hides these prophets. He hides a hundred prophets, fifty to a cave, and he's going to provide them with logistical resources to survive with bread and water. And that's not going to be easy. Fifty people—that's a tremendous amount of water. It is. This this drought went on for three and a half years. You can just step outside this afternoon for. Five or ten, fifteen minutes, and you will begin to appreciate a little bit about the conditions at that time. You go through, go to Israel, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Israel, doesn't matter. You go there in the summertime from about mid-May to mid-September. It's pretty hot, right? Those of you who've been with me at that time, we remember, especially when we came across from Jordan several years ago, it was the end of June. And there, we had to walk across the border down by Elat, and it was chain-link fence on each side, asphalt, concrete, pavement, and uh, radiating the heat. The air temperature, temperature in the shade, was 117. The wind chill was about 140. It was like walking into a hair dryer. had a Scirocco wind coming across the Judean desert, and it was hot. Well, you can just imagine what it's like three and a half years without rain. So it is, you've got to provide food and water. That, that dry air in, in Israel just sucks the moisture out of you. In fact, the first lecture you get when you 
uh, take a group over to Israel, the first lecture the guide gives everybody is to drink water. Every time you uh, get on the bus, grab a bottle of water and drink it. Every time you get off the bus, grab another bottle of water and drink it, and drink water and drink water and drink water all the time. So this is an enormous task that Obadiah says he's got to have secrecy, he's got to have planning, got to have logistics, and he's disobeying the king in a very hostile environment. So what are the principles that guide us in terms of making decisions when we are under an authority that is in violation of the Word of God? So last time I looked at examples of the uh, Hebrew midwives in, Ex- in uh, Exodus chapter 1, and I looked at David, uh, David and Saul in First uh, Samuel. Today I want to go to Daniel. There are three examples in Daniel. I don't know if we'll have time to hit all three this morning, but the first one is in Daniel chapter 1, and this is particularly instructive on how to correctly challenge an authority that is demanding that we violate a direct, specific mandate from God. Remember that terminology, a direct, specific mandate of God. Now, we get the historical context in the first two verses of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he is the king of the Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire, uh, his father, Nabopolassar, had uh, unified this kingdom, defeated the Assyrian uh, Empire, and brought together this, uh, this empire that was then inherited by his son just a few years earlier. This is in uh, uh, probably 605 B.C., when at the, toward the end of the reign of Jehoiakim. We're told in verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar. This is Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar plunders the temple, plunders uh, Jerusalem. He doesn't destroy it at this time. That won't happen until 586. It's just 605. And he brought back these articles into the treasure house of his God. See, this is an important thing to understand for background, is the people there understood this was a victory of the gods. It's a spiritual victory. The gods of Babylon had defeated the God of Israel. They understood that it was a worldview conflict and that they had won. And their pagan worldview was superior to the worldview of Israel because the God of the Jews couldn't protect them. They, they were defeated militarily. So they understood that at the very core of things that it was a religious battle. See, we live in a secular age where those who um, profess to be wise have become fools, as Paul says in Romans 1, because they don't think that religion means anything. And yet it is everything. Everything ultimately comes back to those ultimate reality concepts that we classify under the category of religion, and therefore it addresses every issue of life. The reason that it doesn't address their issues of life or appears not to is because they've adopted an atheistic position, and therefore they say there is no God, but if if theism is a religious position, that is, the belief in a God, then its negation, logically, must also be a religious position. 
If theism is religious, atheism is religious. If so, so you can't have a religiously neutral environment, despite what the Supreme Court says, despite what the elites at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and other schools say. You cannot have a religiously free environment. Every environment assumes some sort of position about God, either. There is one or there isn't one, but they're both equally religious. So everything ultimately goes back to this conflict that we refer to as the angelic conflict. But see, what they don't understand is that God had a reason for letting the Jews be uh, defeated, and it didn't have anything to do with the power of the Babylonian gods. Now, that's the background. Verse 3, Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, verse 4, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, key word there, you might want to circle it or underline it, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. Just a couple of points. Ashpenaz is in charge of the training operations for the staff, for all of the bureaucracy, State Department functions, that kind of thing, within the uh, leadership of the uh, of the empire of the uh, Babylonian or Neo-Chaldean empire under Nebuchadnezzar. And so what their policy was was to bring back as, as uh, captives some of the uh, Israelites, usually young, uh, young men, uh, some young women, I'm sure, but young men specifically is a focus of the text, who were brought back and they were going to re-educate them. They were going to retrain them to serve uh, as uh, bureaucrats within the uh, structure of the Babylonian Empire, and they would bring them back, and those between the ages of about 9 and 16 or 17 could be retrained, re-educated to think within the pagan worldview of the uh, Babylonian Empire, the Chaldeans, so that they could then uh, successfully serve because they thought like everybody else within the structure of the government. And so they had an education system, a state-sponsored education system, whose purpose it was, uh, just like our state-sponsored education uh, system, is to train people to be able to operate within the secular, humanistic, pagan environment of the, the government to serve the government. Somebody said that Fifty uh, percent of the jobs in America ultimately get their money from the government through grants, through uh, direct service and direct work or other things like that, uh, which is a sign of a, of a declining economy. But that's another issue. So these are young men in whom there's no blemish. They look good. When people come into the office and they want to fill out a form, we want to have people standing at the, uh, at the teller window that look good. So they want to look good. Uh, we're not the first society to emphasize uh, good-looking people. Of course, they didn't have the uh, ACLU to come in and challenge them in court for having a, a prejudice towards those who are good-looking. Gifted in all wisdom. Now, that's a key word because this indic- shows us that these young men were uh, able to handle themselves 
They were tested, they were evaluated. That Hebrew word wisdom indicates a skill in life. And it's interesting that the book of Daniel, when the, when the Jews organized the Old Testament, they had three sections. They had the Torah, which is the instruction, the law. That's the first five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The second division was known as the prophets. Uh, they had the early prophets and the latter prophets. The early prophets we don't normally think of as prophets. That was Joshua, Judges, the books of Samuel, book of Kings. Uh, those were in their collection of prophets because they were written by prophets. We think of prophets just as the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, the 12 uh, minor prophets. And we often think of Daniel as a prophet because there's prophecy in the book of Daniel. But Daniel was not included within that division of the Old Testament the Jews saw as as the prophets. It was included in the other section, which was called the writings or the wisdom literature. And the purpose of the writing section was that it was what we would focus on as application. It showed how to live. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, the Psalms, these focus on the, the more practical aspects of applying uh, the Word of God. And what we see in Daniel, the reason that wisdom is so important, is that Daniel shows how believers are to live successfully in a pagan environment. When the government is not the government that is following a divine revelation pattern like the government in Israel was supposed to. It was a pagan government, a pagan culture. And these young men show by the way they handle uh, the situations they face how to wisely deal with the authority of those who uh, do not understand the basic establishment principles that we have in the Word of God or the principles of the law. So they are wise. They possess knowledge. They've had training. And, and Daniel, uh, we're told by uh, intertestamental writers, was a descendant of uh, Zedekiah. So he was in the royal family. He would also necessarily then be a descendant of David. He is would have been brought up by parents who taught him the word. This is evident. He and his friends all know the word of God very uh, clearly. They would also have in their possession the books of Isaiah, uh, some of Jeremiah. It's clear that they have Jeremiah from things that are said. Uh, Ezekiel will be in the land of, of uh, Babylon as well during this time, during the time of their life. So they have access to the word of God. And this forms the foundation of their thinking and their actions. So then verse 5, And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacy. So one of the ways they're going to be trained and brought into the society is going to be through the diet. They're going to learn to eat the things the uh, Babylonians eat, and they're going to follow their, their diet. Uh, so they have a daily provision, the king's delicacies, and the wine which he drank. They have their views, the, the Babylonians had their views of nutrition, their views of diet, and they were going to make sure that these uh, young men that they were going to train were going to be healthy according to their standards, and so they wanted to make sure they ate right and they drank right and that they would therefore be uh, uh, physically as fit as they were going to be uh, mentally. And so there's actually going to be three ways in which they impose their culture on uh, these young men. Three challenges. 
The first is going to be a name change, which we'll see in the next uh, couple of verses. Secondly, the curriculum of the training is going to be a purely pagan curriculum. They would have been taught all about the gods and goddesses of the Babylonian religion. They would have been taught the origin myths, the creation myths, the flood myths of the uh, Babylonians. They would have been taught all about uh, Bel and Ishtar and uh, all about these the various religious beliefs of the Babylonians and been expected to have accepted them by virtue of the conquest because obviously their gods were stronger than the gods uh, that they had grown up with. Their gods had defeated the God of Israel. So they would have this pagan curriculum. They would be taught mathematics. They would be taught uh, geometry. They would be taught about law. They would be taught writing. They would be taught all about all of the structures within the government and the bureaucracy so that they could function that way. But it all would be uh, encased within a, the general worldview of the Babylonians. And then the third thing, of course, is this thing about the diet. So there are three areas that all violate the word of God. Now we come to verse 6, and we read, Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now when I said two of those names, Hananiah and Azariah, I'm emphasizing the last syllable. In fact, in Hebrew, the last syllable would have been accented anyway. That represents the first syllable in the name of God. The Hebrew name of God was Yahweh. And we know that at least the first syllable would have been pronounced that way because of endings in names like this. So their names, uh, two of these names have the stamp of the name of God. And the other two, Daniel and Mishael, the last syllable L, is also the word for God. It's more the generic word for God, like our English word God. So they have names that have been given to them by their parents to signify something about their views of God. Daniel's name meant God is judge. Daniel, the I there would indicate a personal suffix. God is my judge, was the name of Daniel. Hananiah means uh, Yah is gracious. Yah is gracious. So it emphasizes the grace of God. This is the same word, you know, Hannah, uh, the wife uh, of uh, uh, back in Mother of Samuel, back in First Samuel chapter 1. Third name, Mishael. El is the word for God. Mish is the Hebrew for who? Mish. Uh, so Mishael would mean, and then the Shah indicates like, so the the name would mean who is like God, emphasizing the uniqueness of the God of Israel. And then the fourth name, Azariah, Yah, again refers to Yahweh. The first part of the name, Atzer, or the Hebrew verb Atzer, which the woman was created to be an Atzer or a helper for the for Adam. Atzer means helper. And so his name, Atzariah, would mean Yah is my helper. So their names were testimonies of the grace, the power, and the care of their God. Well, the Babylonians couldn't let that pass because they had to rename them. And, and you should know by now that the nomenclature is a battlefield in the worldview wars, in the culture wars. Who gets to call, uh, you know, for one, per, one person it's taxes, for another person it's just uh, fees. Uh, what you call it and who gets to name it often 
uh, focuses or determines the course of the debate. So in verse 7 we read, Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Etzariah Abednego. So what did these names mean? Well, they were religious in their meaning. They are stamping each of these young men with a new name, indicating they have a new God, they have new ownership, and they would have to be known by these names. They would be required to call each other by these names when they were in their in their classes. Uh, Belteshazzar is, is uh, Daniel's name. Bel was the chief god. Bel is... Um, a, the same name, Baal, it's just when it's brought over into Akkadian, it becomes Bel. And so the, uh, his name meant, may Bel protect his life. And the idea was, Yahweh didn't do a very good job of protecting you over there in Israel because we whipped up on you. So, uh, we're going to give you a new name and we're going to let Bel be the one, uh, to protect you. Second, uh, Azariah is called Shadrach. From Sudar Aku, meaning at the command of Aku, the moon god. So he's stamped with a new name. Of course, uh, the moon god in later on in for the uh, Arabs was a god named uh, Allah, and he had three wives, and and there were he was just one of 360 deities in the Arabic pantheon. And when Muhammad came along, he got rid of the other 359 and kept the moon god. So this moon god thing goes on, and you still see that in uh, Arab, Arab nations' flags where they have the crescent, crescent moon indicating the uh, ultimate origin of Allah. Now we have, so we have uh, uh, Shadrach is named after Aku, the moon god. Meshach uh, went from his name, Mishael, who is from God, to who is Aku, uh, again, the moon god. So Meshach, the A-C-H, indicates Aku, the moon god. And then the last name, Abed- Abednego, which means I am the slave or the servant of Nebo. Uh, Nego, N-E-G-O, was just a corruption or variation on the word Nebo, the, or Nabu, the second highest god in the Babylonian uh, pantheon. So what we have here is a clear indication that they're stamped with this new worldview. They, they're given a new name. They have a new diet, and they have to follow a certain procedure in their curriculum. They're going to be brainwashed according to the myths and the legends and the ideas of the Babylonians. Now, you could pick a battle on each one of those fronts uh, legitimately. But two of those fronts are not uh, directly related to direct specific commands of God. Remember I said that there were three issues that they faced. One had to do with the curriculum, one had to do with the name change, and the third had to do with the diet. Now, one of the things that we have to remember whenever we are going to challenge or question authority is we have to make sure that the issue has to do with that direct specific command of God. And so the first things that we learn when we are doing battle with a pagan culture or we are doing battle with an authority or questioning an authority is we have to pick our battles. 
Uh, there are thousands of battles that we could fight, thousands of hills that we can die on, and we have to use the military principle of the economy of force. You can't die on every hill. Though I know some of you want to, some of you think that there is no hill too small. But you can't do it. You have to pick the ones that are the direct that deal with the direct, specific commands of God. So Daniel doesn't focus on the name change, doesn't make an issue out of that. He doesn't make an issue out of the curriculum. They learn to regurgitate what they are, they are taught in class, but they don't internalize it as part of their worldview because, or part of their thinking because that is, that has been already shaped by the excellent training they had uh, from their parents. But they do focus on the diet. The diet is part of the religious uh, thinking of the Babylonians, but it also relates to specific mandates regarding diet that are given in the Mosaic Law. So in verse 8 we read, But Daniel purposed in his heart. See, that emphasizes his volition, but it has the idea he set his thinking on something. He made a firm decision. He was committed to the truth of God's word and that he is going to make sure that God's word is the issue and God's word is what is honored. When you talk about the other two issues, the curriculum, and you think about the uh, the issue of the name change, these would have to do with what I call just dealing with principles of Scripture. But Daniel knows the battle's got to be fought on the specifics of scriptural command. So he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. See, he, he recognizes that he's under the authority. He's not going to be rebellious in terms of his overt attitude. He's going to recognize the authority of the, of the eunuch, and he is going to appeal to him on the basis of a pragmatic value within the thinking and the, the operation of this eunuch. The eunuch's job is to produce well-trained, healthy, fit uh, servants for the bureaucracy of Babylon. And so Daniel is going, thinks about it. He doesn't just fly off emotionally. I'm not going to eat this food. This is terrible. This violate God's word. He's not going to do that. He's going to construct a very careful procedure, and he's going to show us that there are times to challenge authority, but you have to work within the structures of the authority that's there, whether that's within the uh, parent parents, whether it's within the school, whether it's within the government, there are ways to properly challenge unjust laws, unjust policies, uh, that, and we must uh, follow those and be willing to take whatever consequences may come our way. He doesn't gather everybody together and go on a march. He doesn't uh, picket uh, the, uh, the, the training school, but he goes to the eunuch and says, okay, let's, let, let me give you a, a case here where you give us a couple of weeks where we eat what we want to eat, what we believe is right, and everybody else can eat what they, what you want them to eat, and then at the end of two weeks you can weigh us, you can test us, you can check us out, and if we're not at least as healthy and as fit as everyone else, 
then we'll go along with your plan. And so he appeals to the pragmatic values of the of the eunuch. And so we're told uh, this in verses 12 and 13, where he says, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So, verse 14, they consented uh, with them in this manner, and at the end of ten days their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who are the portion of the king's delicacies. At the risk of offending any of you who are vegetarians, this may be the first case in history where somebody who's just eating vegetables put on weight and... Um, that vegetable diet did not uh, cause them to lose weight, but they, they were fitter and fatter than everyone else. So what we see here is that a couple of principles in challenging authority. First of all, be careful in picking your battle. Make sure the issue is the specific stated word of God. The second is be wise in the way you negotiate with the person in authority. Don't be rude, don't be arrogant, don't uh, step out of bounds. Let your attitude be one of humility and construct or an appeal that uh, is attractive to the person that you are uh, negotiating with so that you can create a win-win uh, situation. And when you go into this, realize that the answer may be, uh, that yes, and eventually they may go, they may, you may be validated. Uh, the person in authority may say no, in which case then you have to submit to that authority. Or if you're not going to submit to the authority, you have to be willing personally to take the, uh, take the punishment. And we will see that in the next two examples we'll get to in the next couple of weeks in Daniel. I knew we wouldn't get there this morning. Uh, this one lays out such a tremendous uh, principle for us. And then uh, uh, another point is don't become distracted. Don't get off on side points. Don't argue irrelevancies. Don't argue, uh, don't get off into some sort of uh, extraneous argument on something that doesn't bear on the direct issue, uh, direct issue at hand. The, we will always have problems. As believers, living in a fallen world, living under authority structures that are dominated by people who operate on pagan worldviews, people who operate on their sin natures, people who operate on arrogance, and we as believers have to make sure, as Jesus said, that we are wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That means you have to think. That means you have to uh, be prayerful in the way in which you approach anything. David and his three friends were very prayerful. We see that all the way through through Daniel. They were men of prayer. So before they engaged in anything, they committed it to the Lord in prayer uh, many, many times. They claimed promises related to uh, what they were going to do. And this is the basis then for uh, challenging any authority. Now, in this situation, things worked out well for Daniel and his three friends. But we'll see in the next instance that things don't work out quite so well, and the three 
who are involved or the three friends are have to challenge the authority of the king and they know that if he doesn't respond to them then the punishment is going to be death in the fiery furnace so we'll come back and look at that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you so much that we have your word to guide and direct us your word tells us about your love and your care for us and that that was exhibited most fully at the cross where Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, where he paid that penalty in full. And, Father, he, he submitted himself to your authority, being willing to go to the cross to experience that death, uh, <clears throat> even though it was involved with the shame and everything else that went with it, the pain of bearing our sin and his righteous, uh, righteous person, there upon the cross. Nevertheless, he submitted to authority a picture for us in this whole uh, doctrine. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for you. He had you in mind when he hung there on the cross, and he paid the penalty for your sins, everyone. He didn't forget one. He didn't miss any. He paid for every sin so that the only thing that is necessary is for you to believe that Jesus died for you, to trust in him, and in that faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we studied. We all deal with authority structures in our lives. The ultimate one, of course, is your word, and we need to submit to the authority of your word that we might grow and mature as believers and that we might glorify you in all that we think, say, and do. And so we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.